Let me tell you what this political movement is about. Jobs and growth for all Australians. On jobs and growth. Have great jobs. Economic growth. Strong growth. More jobs. When they go low, we go high. So I'm seeing in my mind something very similar with this bill to a colonoscopy. Let me just stop you so you don't waste a line of questioning. I'm just giving you... I love the mansplaining. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Please clap. Please clap. This is Represent. 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 On Sid Nation. Hello and welcome to another episode of Represent on Sin Nation, the hour of politics. I'm Julia. And I'm Tash. And I'm Isadora. On today's show, we'll be looking at Turkey's referendum and the 51.4% yes vote majority that has caused issues across the international community. We'll be speaking to academics in the field to give us a better perspective. We'll be looking at the French elections, which are due to take place in a couple of days. Um, The federal government's recent announcement to um, change the 457 visa and most recently um, changes to citizenship laws. And of course, we'll be having Pop Chat, the perfect closing segment to an otherwise dense political episode where we offer up the most noteworthy, hilarious and awkward headlines of the week. You can get involved too, just send us a tweet at SinRepresent or find us on facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. We usually post lots of interesting things on both of our social media networks and we also have an Instagram. Yes, we do. Yes. (laughs) So please check it out because it's awesome and political. Very fun and we we always give you interesting updates throughout the week. Um, But first we're going to start with a song. Um, This is Louis the Child and Aishi with world on fire and when we return we'll be speaking to coventry university research fellow dr baha bessia um you're listening to represent on sin nation That was World World on Fire by Louis the Child and Ash. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, the hour of politics. So we're now going to talk about the Turkish referendum and speak to um, Coventry University Research Fellow, Dr. Baha Basir. Um, so, so we just wanted to give a, like a little perspective of what the referendum is actually about. So what happened was Recep Tayyip Erdogan... Um, held a referendum in Turkey to see a yes or no campaign over whether he could have executive powers, basically giving a concentrated um, parliament and government. Um, The yes campaign won by 51.4%, but that has been contested by opposition parties as well as as a lot of um, figures and organisations in the international community, not only for the propaganda against the no campaign, but because of such issues like um, the state of emergency that's currently in Turkey. But we're now going to go to Dr. Basir and um, ask a few questions. Yeah, definitely. So um, how are you today? Um, Hello. 
Hey, um, so do you consider the results of the referendum to be a victory for the people in Turkey or is it actually not a victory? Um, okay, thank you very much, first of all, uh, for inviting me to a program. Mm -hmm. um, I'll try to summarize um, um, whatever you told about the referendum just a little bit to put uh, things in perspective. Yep. Um, so Turkey has been under a state of emergency for almost a year now. And uh, it was the worst time to hold a referendum to start with because, you know, there is no freedom of speech, there is no freedom of assembly. Um, this is one of the most important referendums in Turkish political history because it's actually about changing the constitution in a way that will give uh, more of the power to the president and change the system from a parliamentarian one to a an executive presidency, which means one-man rule. And this presidential system is a bit of a Turkish-style one, so it's not the same as in the U.S. or in France. And uh, the referendum um, was not uh, free. I mean, it was neither free nor fair to start with, uh, because uh, most of the opposition uh, was uh, oppressed during the campaign, and, uh, for example, the, the pro-Kurdish parties, MPs, and mayors were put in prison, journalists uh, who are in the opposition were in prison, uh, many academics who opposed to the current regime were banned from public service, sacked from universities, etc. So, um, and also the, the Yes campaigners um, polarized the society during the campaign and they kept saying that people who opposed to this uh, amendments are actually terrorists and they don't want to, they don't work for the national interest. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems like now the yes, won, um, yes campaign won. It's just with uh, 51%. It's just, uh, I think, in my opinion, this is not a victory because the results are contested. Uh, a lot of uh, election fraud is actually documented by the OSCE reports before and after the referendum. And the opposition parties are now contesting the results, but because there is no law at the moment, they don't have a higher uh, court to go to. So most probably they will carry this to the European Court of Human Rights. And um, it's, it, it shows that the Turkish society is extremely divided and polarized because it's, uh, in the end it's 50-50. So the, the, the rest of the 50% will have to live under a system that they did not want it. So in the end, I think this will just uh, cause more divisions in the society and the transition will not be that smooth. Yeah, um, so I guess one really important question is um, after this after this referendum, how Turkey uh, treats its neighbours and works um, with other countries. Um, so obviously um, we've got a lot of Syrian refugees and there's a big fight against ISIS. How do you think... Um, how do you think this referendum and Erdogan's um, new executive powers will affect the fight against ISIS and also rehousing Syrian refugees? Of course, yes. I mean, uh, I would like to start with the relations with the, with the European Union because yeah. I think it has an impact on Turkey's policy on Syria. Uh, I mean, Turkey has lost a lot of prestige during the couple of years. Um, uh, especially in the eyes of the Western powers, because it, there, there was like creeping authoritarianism that was becoming more and more visible. And uh, now it seems like, um, I mean, the first thing that the president talked about was the bringing death penalty back 
which means uh, um, the end of Turkey's journey towards European membership. And, and this will, of course, um, um, push Turkey to get closer with other um, other states if, if it's not having good relations with the EU. So it will uh, move towards the Middle East and establish new relations with other other countries in the Middle East. So this will be a big transition. Um, but uh, when it comes to uh, Syria, Turkey's foreign policy has been a, a disaster. Uh, if, we, if you look at it from a foreign policy perspective, because uh, it's been years Turkey intervened in Syrian politics too much, especially during the uh, former Prime Minister Davutoglu's period. And uh, now, now it's a mess, and they couldn't uh, do anything to ameliorate the situation. Turkey has now uh, millions of Syrian refugees, and uh, most of these people are living in Turkey for more than five years now, so they are there to stay. But the state doesn't have adequate policies to deal with this either. Um, and uh, there have been a lot of uh, terrorist attacks in Turkey during the last two, three years. And uh, ISIS claimed them. And the last one, if you remember, was uh, uh, during the New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, so it, in, it is said that there are lots of dormant ISIS cells in Turkey at the moment. So it's also like the Syrian conflict spilled over to Turkey. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't see a strong Turkey to deal with these problems at the moment because of its domestic instability. Yeah. Um, so can I ask about... Um, how successful do you think the opposition party could be in contesting the vote? Um, the referendum votes? Yeah, the referendum um, votes. Yes, so the, the, the CHP has been a little bit uh, passive during the referendum. It's also because, you know, like they had no access to media institutions, they had no access to state money to, to do propaganda. So there have been some studies, for example, which shows that AKP was given almost 80% airtime uh, compared to the 20% uh, of the other parties. So this shows how, how the ruling party is actually controlling all state institutions, and this has not changed. So if they want to contest now, for example, they go to the Supreme Election Council, uh, whose members are elected by the ruling party. If you go to the, uh, the, um, the Constitutional Court, uh, still the members, the, the, the judges are appointed by the ruling party or the president. So there is no way you can find a neutral institution in Turkey to bring such issues. So what they, what they will do is to collaborate with the, with the Western community and uh, by using the OSCE report, taking this, uh, this, especially this fraud issue to the European Court of Human Rights. But in the long run, um, this, this has been happening since, uh, since the Gezi protest in 2013. The, the space where the opposition groups can represent themselves, raise their voice, was getting smaller and smaller. And after the referendum, within two years' time, we are not even sure if this is going to exist. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to say or add? Um, no, I just thank you very much for inviting me to your That's program. Okay. Thanks so much for speaking to us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. That was so research fellow at the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University, Dr. Baha Bassa, um, who was speaking to us about the recent Turkish referendum um, and offered a lot of good 
stuff to say um, on that. Um, so the referendum did just pass. Um, it might take, I think, about a year or so for it to be stated, uh, reinstated um, in Turkey. But yeah, that was an interesting interview. Yeah, definitely. Such an interesting interview. But if you'd like to add to the discussion, um, please join us. Let us know what you think of the Turkish referendum by tweeting to us at sinrepresent or let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent. We're going to go to an interview with uh, Deakin University PhD candidate Tezkan Gama, who I spoke with about the Turkish referendum um, recently. So we'll go to that. Yeah. So I just wanted to start with the opening question of how this referendum came about and what it was in reaction to. And also in that question, if you could touch on um, the surrounding issues, the social and political issues like um, Turkey being in a current uh, state of emergency. Okay. So, but I'll just get to how the referendum came about. I guess the current government, um, the AKP government, has been in power since 2002, and and they've uh, and they've won consecutive um, elections by, by uh, a large margin compared to other other opposition parties. So they've been able to rule as a single um, party since 2002. So I guess in a couple of years ago, um, they wanted to change the Turkish constitution from a parliamentary system to, uh, I guess, a direct presidential system. Unfortunately, they didn't have a, a good time a, lot, a couple of years ago um, trying to get it off the ground, but in, in the last year they were able to make alliances within parliament to get enough sort of um, parliamentary votes to push it into a referendum. And I guess what was campaigned on was it wasn't based around um, uh, democratising or, or uh, the, the constitution, it was more about bringing um, stability uh, with the ex- 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 executive and presidency. So their whole argument was with the exec- executive president with enhanced powers, then um, uh, political and economical decisions will be made uh, much more uh, uh, e- efficiently with greater speed as opposed to a parliamentary system where you know there was a lot of um, checks and, and a lot of... Um, uh, I guess debates and holds up hold ups with with policy as well. The, the known campaign, the opposing campaign, was you know if, when you look at these changes in the referendum, uh, they give extraordinary powers to uh, to a president to one single person because you get to elect half the um, judicial body. Um, you know, can make, uh, has the option of making law by himself um, uh, as opposed uh, and going around the par- parliament. Um, sets the, the budget of the states, fires and hires all state employees, so that is, you know, the military and bureaucracy. In, in short, he becomes the head of the government and head of the state, and there, and there is really no checks on his power. So that this referendum was held during a state of emergency, what does, what does that mean? Is that, um, you know, I've read in various outlets that it's, it impacted the... Um, the yes vote, like that it was kind of, um, I don't know how to say it, not unfair, but it was sort of um, not... Well, you can say unfair, definitely. It was was definitely very, very unfair and unbalanced. Um, You had the governing party uh, and the president, Erdogan, using all the state's resources to campaign for the yes vote. So this was the outside of the, uh, I guess, um, it it was unfair because you have a president, which is Erdogan, who is meant in constitution, is meant to be bipartisan, so above politics, 
um, using his, you know, his influence and power directly campaigning on behalf of, of, an, of a political party. So you have that. And then you have the state of emergency, which means that you know, a, a lot of the freedoms have been curtailed. So you have during this uh, state of emergency, which is resulting from uh, the attempt, uh, attempted coup of, of, of July last year. So you have you know, um, many journalists locked up, 100 media outlets closed in that time. You have, you know, over two, two and a half thousand members of the judiciary. You have um, a third of the military personnel purged um, from the army. You you know, you have the power to crack down and ban assembly, freedom of assembly. So, you know, and these were all used to curtail um, and muzzle the uh, opposing no campaign. So it was definitely, um, you have the European um, Commission who observed the, the, the vote definitely come out and say this was a very unfair and biased um, election. And I also wanted to ask about what it will mean for um, uh, Turkish citizens uh, as well as the international community for um, Erdogan to have these executive powers, sort of like with the cooperation between um, countries and things like that. Yeah, sure. Um, look, the, the citizens, obviously, you know, it means that the end of democracy, as I've written in one of my articles, you know, you look at this and you know, there is a parliament, but, you know, basically it's a toothless tiger and, and it can't hold it, uh, the, the president to account on anything. So, you know, it's, not, it's definitely not a good day for, uh, for citizens when this comes into full effect, but it hasn't been anyway for the last few years. Turkey's definitely gone down a very authoritarian slant and this is just actually rubber stamping that, making that official. So for, for Turkish citizens and freedom of press, freedom of opposition, criticism, media, assembly, you know, for any quarters that oppose the government or policy, it's definitely not, it's not a good time at the moment, as opposed to regional relationships. I mean, we've seen what the, the, the lead-up to a referendum has done between Turkey and EU, where Erdogan's, antagonism and rhetoric towards EU, you know, was very uh, nasty where he was calling, you know, the German um, government and Dutch government as Nazis Mm -hmm. and and remnants of Nazism and and fascists for simply not allowing Erdogan and his his AKP party to to campaign in their countries, which is their complete right to say, no, you know, you you are not allowed to um, campaign here for your own political purposes. We have our own domestic politics here. So you have that... Uh, and then you have, obviously, you know, the, the whole thing with Syria, which Turkey is completely against Assad's rule. You know, you have, you know, a, a rupture of all tensions within the Iraqi government uh, and also um, with Russia as well. Things are on the mend, but not, not as what they used to be. So, you know, it, it, Turkey has... Erdogan's um, foreign policy has really isolated Turkey uh, in, in its region. With this situation in Turkey and, and, and the people... As contested as it is, you know, that slight majority of 51% voting, yes, for the for a constitutional change, it says a lot about democracy that, you know, when the majority wants to, it can question and anything is up for grabs and questioning and even democracy itself. So I think this is something that we should be very, very conscious of, that just because a country has democracy does not mean that it progresses up a linear path to, to consolidation, that it can be taken away and questioned. So we need to be always the active, actively engaged citizens in our politics and hold our parliamentarians to account. That's a nice point to leave on. That was Deakin University PhD candidate Tezkan Gama speaking with uh, Tash Gris on about the uh, Turkish referendum um, that has just gone by. Um, Tezkan will be holding a panel with 
three other academics to discuss Turkey and the recent referendum at Deakin's Burwood campus on the 3rd of May between 10.30 and 2, um, 12 p.m., sorry. Um, there's a complimentary lunch provided, which is always a good match with political discussions. Um, so we encourage you to go ask questions, be involved in the discussion. Um, you can check out the flyer on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash sin represent. Um, so this is Super Cruel and Lisa Mitchell with November. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. We used to... And that was Super Cruel and um, Lisa Mitchell with November. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. And we're going to be talking um, about the French election, which is actually happening on the... Tw- well, th- round one is happening on the 23rd um, in France. So it's like a little bit later for, that for us. But yeah, it's going to be very, very exciting. Yeah. Did France not- has um, had a lot of... Uh, horrible terrorist attacks well numerous not a lot but um, that's kind of marred the whole democratic process of voting Mm. so it'll be interesting to see what happens Um, and of course with the shooting um, this week yeah um, whether or not that boosts Marine Le Pen's um, vote Mm. or not um, you know and if you know something like that you know such a chance incident you know, changes an election result. That would be quite interesting to see. Well, I think I read that they've stopped campaigning and and sort of like marketing themselves mm. um, since that happened. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Of course, but there was a already planned hiatus. They have a cooling off period for a day. So okay, it occurred nice. just beforehand. But they did. Some of the candidates did make a point of stopping for the day. Yeah. As you said, um, to um, recognise the incident. In that way, but yeah, it's an interesting thing in in the French elections mm. having that day of non-campaigning before mm. people go out to vote. So yeah. it means that that incident is the last thing that, that many French voters will remember before going to the yeah. polls. Yeah, yeah, that's really. Um, I'm sure that worries everyone, but yeah, that that kind of makes the whole thing unpredictable. I mean, it was unpredictable before, being you know how close the, they were in the polls, like the far left and far right candidates. But yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to predict. Um, so it's there's eleven candidates all up, but there's like the f- top four candidates we have. Um, so then after this vote, the top two go into the second round, and then carries on from there. It's like a reality TV show. Yeah, <laughs> it's really exciting stuff in politics. Um, so we have the far right candidate Marine Le Pen, who is currently polling, or the last time. I checked, was 21.5%. And then we have the centrist independent Emmanuel Macron, who is at 24%, so he's currently in the lead. And then we have the former Prime Minister, Francois Fillon, at 20%, and the far-left candidate, okay, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, with... Such a great name. Mélenchon. 0.5%. So they're the top four candidates, and they are really... They're so different. They're just, there's nothing that, yeah. And, like, no one is particularly, like, it's all between 19.5 and 24. Yeah. Like, that's very, very, like, tight. And the most recent polling has the um, bottom two out of that top four um, gaining on the leading two candidates. So it was tightening as um, the French went into that um, cooling off period, so... 
Yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting. So the main ones, um, are the main problems currently is employment and underemployment in France. So I think around twenty eight percent of French uh, young people, around fifteen to twenty four year olds, are actually employed. Um, there are a lot of worker protections against. Um, Employers, so there's a lot of red tape that's kind of unattractive to um, people who are trying to hire uh, workers. So um, they have like you have to go through a lot of internships and like a, like a process before you can actually go on to get a full time job. So there's um, you know mounting debt and then economic struggle, struggle along with unemployment. So um, and then of course you have uh, a society that feels unsafe. So it's really mm. unpredictable at this. And I feel like it is, like, really important to mention how the society feels unsafe. Um, It was actually really interesting because I went to France last year and it was around a year after um, that first attack, uh, or the the attack that um, happened in um, 2015 in, in November and a taxi driver was like to us, oh, so you're still coming to Paris even though you know, this thing happened last year and we're like, oh, of course, we're going to Paris because it's Paris. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, something like terrorist attacks, I think, you know, as far as going to a country that, you know, has had these little attacks coming in and out, um, you know, like there are um, military on the street. Like when I was in Paris, there were military quite a quite a strong military presence and not nothing that would terrify you nothing like they made you feel safe it wasn't like scary but there is like this little bit of on edge people are are on edge you know they have well, to it makes check you hyper aware sort of as yeah. well that... so all of our bags had to be mm. checked whenever we went into any kind of um like any kind of um art gallery or museum and i feel like a lot of people have this kind of it was like normalized it was very normal but at the same time yeah there was definitely like there's a certain feeling of defiance but at the same time there's definitely some fear behind that I think it's also um I I read this morning that outside the polling booths for voting there's going to be like elite soldiers Mm. and I think that's so that's so sad because that's like the one time that you get to actually like express your democratic right yeah um like on paper and you know vote which is so important but then you know have that kind of tainted with a military presence in a like a western society it's really yeah it's really sad and again like yeah you do see military patrolling everywhere Mm. um down the streets of paris just because you know they never know what's going to happen all the rubbish bins are clear so no one can put bombs in that um you know, there is a certain level of heightened security kind of just everywhere. Um, I also wanted to just touch on the importance of this election, um, not only for um, France itself, but also, uh, you know, it plays a big role in, if you will remember, that famous $50 billion submarine deal. Um, so that Ooh, $50 <laughs> plays, million dollar submarine. <laughs> plays an important role. Um, you know, France is playing a key role in developing our fleet, our future fleet. Um, it's also going to be very interesting. All of the candidates, well, most of the candidates have a different opinion on the EU and staying in the Eurozone and whether or not, you know, whatever decision or whoever's voted in, you know, that will affect. We could see another Brexit, they're calling it. Brexit. A Brexit for France. So... <laughs> 
Yeah, it's really important. Like Marine Le Pen, um, you know, suggested an exit from the euro currency and also, you know, a Britain style Brexit for France. So it's just um, it's going to be interesting to see uh, like that's, you know, not just a French issue. That's yeah. an international issue. And I think the, the eurozone, like even as we we're saying before with um, with Erdogan and um, Turkey, mm. like what's going to happen with that? What's going to well, like Brexit still hasn't gone through. And as we have nice little segue, um, <laughs> Theresa May has I called know. an early election. Um, be interesting. She'll be very interesting and very worthwhile watching and keeping up with that. Um, and of course, you know, Art- Article 50 has been triggered. So to see like just the whole Europe in general is just mm. in a really interesting state of flux. Mm. It'll be interesting to see how what happens. Um, but we're actually going to go to an interview um, from the features coordinator here at SIN, Stefan Bradley, who spoke with Cecile Jatune, I'm so sorry, a young French citizen about the upcoming elections in France. Represent reporter Stefan Bradley here. It is Wednesday the 19th of April at the time of recording and this Sunday the 23rd of April is round one of the 2017 French presidential election. My guest is a friend of mine, Cécile Chatonnet. She is a young French citizen who has travelled around Europe quite a bit the last few years and is close to finishing her studies. Cécile, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. All right, so the first round of the election is this Sunday, and this has been an unpredictable and tight race. So what, what's the mood in France right now? What, what, are, what are the media saying? What are your friends and colleagues um, feeling? Because this is important, an important election. Yes, this is very important, as you said. So people are either uh, excited or tense, but we can feel that people are really, really want to have the, um, the result of this election soon. Uh, people are talking a lot about the election, media as well. Now, um, let's leave aside who you want to win, who you're going to vote for. If you just think about, you know, no bias, what is, what, what is your prediction? Who do you think will win the first round and who do you think will win the second round? Mm, it's hard to tell. Personally, I would say that Emmanuel Macron will win. Um, but it's very hard to tell as people are not very sure of these votes. Uh, people who vote for uh, Marine Le Pen, for example, are really sure of their votes. But people for Emmanuel Macron might change their opinion. But I would think it would win the presidential first, first round and second round. And think... I would think it would face Marine Le Pen. Okay, so can, can we, we can't really trust polls or anything because they were wrong about Brexit and Trump and this election so yes. close. It could be... I mean, literally anything could happen, surely. Mm. Yes. Well, the thing is, uh, it all depends on the turnout uh, rate. Um, let's say about young people, it's about 50% of young people who want uh, to vote. Um, so if people at the last minute want to vote, it might change a lot the election. Also, uh, we can think that there is about 20% of people who don't know who to vote for yet. So it might change a lot. So we don't know how to trust uh, polls for that. They think about a third of French eligible voters won't go to the ballots, um, which seems to, you know, follow the worldwide trends of, at least in the Western world, of people being um, disenfranchised by, uh, by politics in general and the establishment. So why do you think um, young people especially um, don't want to vote? 
Um, well, it's a bit difficult to tell because I don't know personally people who don't vote. Um, but I think that uh, first they don't picture themselves in any of the candidates. Um, they don't represent their ideas. Um, and also, I think that a lot of people are dis disappointed by politics and they don't think it's going to change anything. And also with the scandals we have seen with Marine Le Pen or François Fillon, we also see that people are disappointed by politics. So I think it's their way to show they don't agree with what's happening here. As a, as a young person, Cecile, who, what, what are the most important issues affect, affecting young, um, young French voters like yourself and, and your colleagues and friends? I think it can be employment because um, a lot of people are unemployed. Uh, young people are unemployed. Um, also, we can see with Jean-Luc Mélenchon that people uh, that it matters for young people um, questions about the environment, environmental issues, um, also solidarity issues. If people vote for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, it's what they care about. Do you think French voters uh, and maybe even people around the world realize how important this election is? Uh, the thing is, I don't think so. <laughs> Um, we are really self-centered, I think. So um, I didn't realize how much influence it has outside of France. But um, just the fact that we are talking about that on maybe Australian radio and then we speak about that all around the world, maybe realize it can be important, um, especially inside the EU. Jean-Pierre Fay, he has a theory called the Horseshoes Theory in Political Science. Uh, which asserts that the far left and the far right um, actually closely resemble one another, much like the ends of a horseshoe. So this would um, be, you know, Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Mélenchon. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, do, do you think that there is, like, some sort of similarity between these two, the far left and the far right? Yes, of course. I think that they speak to the same person. Um, they want to reassure people that doesn't have a job. They want to reassure people that are not paid enough. They they want to give them, let's say, answers. Um, it's not exactly the same as uh, Marine Le Pen is more protectionist and more, let's say, nationalist than Jean-Luc Mélenchon. But yes, they speak to the same person and they want to give more uh, purchasing power to poor people, etc. Either of them could make us leave, uh, could make France leave the European Union and... Do you think a Frexit would be a would be a bad thing, or would that be the end of the European Union? I think it would be very bad, both for France and for the European Union. But I'm not sure it would happen because Marine Le Pen wants to have a referendum, and we don't know how people are going to vote. I don't think people will vote for the Frexit. But I mean, if people vote for Marine Le Pen, they might vote for the Frexit as well. I think it would be really bad, especially to come back to the front. To go out of the eurozone, I think that would be very bad, both for inflation, for prices, etc., for your savings. I think it would be really bad, and especially for the European Union, if both um, Brexit and Frexit happen, uh, I don't think there would be much left for the EU, for the European Union. Uh, Cecile, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So, what's your opinion about the upcoming elections in France? If you'd like to let us know, um, you can tweet us at SINREPRESENT or let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash SINREPRESENT. 
So here's a song. This is Mink with Gold Angel. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. That was Mink with Gold Angel. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, the hour of politics. So this week we wanted to talk about the changes to the 457 visa that were proposed by Malcolm Turnbull this week. Um, It's an interesting reform that uh, the Turnbull government's bringing in. Um, Currently, the program that we've had um, has been in place since the... 1997, um, and it's a four-year visa which allows foreign workers to fill jobs in 650 occupations. So, axing the visa, it's going to be replaced with two new visas, um, uh, temporary skills visas, and a more specialised one, which is um, for four years targeting higher skills. So, the main reforms are around the requirements. Um, Previously, um, you didn't require any uh, work experience, and this year, um, this reform requires two years of relevant work experience, and um, also a focus on proficiency in English for the four-year visa. Um, there's also going to be a criminal history check rather than um, a declaration by the applicant as previously required. So, mm. another interesting reform is um, there isn't going to be a residency pathway as was the case with the 457 visa scheme, um, where you could um, come in and then there's a pathway to permanent residency. Um, Also, the 650 occupations that were on the list in the current scheme, it's going to be cut by 200 jobs, um, such as fast food outlet workers, um, shearers, actors, call centre managers, um, are some of the occupations that will be cut. And the changes will come in in July, so that's pretty swift um, change. Um, one interesting point uh, is that Australian companies will be um, charged fees for hiring temporary skilled foreign workers. Um, uh, the two-year visa application fee will be um, $1,150 and the four-year visa will cost $2,400. So there's going to be a real push in terms of monetary penalties um, for Australian companies that aren't conforming to this scheme. Mm. I think it's really interesting like Malcolm Turnbull comes out with this and like all these other politicians like Pauline Hanson come up like oh we started it. (laughs) Yeah so it's interesting to see that um, yeah that transition. It's another really interesting case in because like the reason some of the reasonings for um changing the 457 visa is to um, boost um, jobs for Australian people. So it's this kind of, and it's interesting because like a lot of um, other legislation such as tax cuts for small to medium businesses and um, things like penalty rates, these have all been said to be things that will boost employment, though a lot of people are really sceptical about it. Um because, you know, just because we aren't having migrants working in certain industries anymore um, or not getting that particular visa to do so, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are going to be more jobs later on. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, The point um, hasn't been made, I think, 
too much, but immigration has been a major driver of Australian economic growth for you know almost as long as Australia's been around, but yeah. particularly the last um, decade, more, two decades. So it's interesting that it's a sort of reshaping of the rhetoric that I think some might call quite um, transparently political mm-hmm. rather than policy orientated. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, and it ties in perfectly with uh, Malcolm Turnbull's announcement over the citizenship laws, um, which I think a lot of uh, I think it's, it's, there are some good points in it. I think a lot of contested opinion surrounded the Australian values point um, mm. he seemed to enforce when he made this media statement, um, which you know it had me questioning what. An Australian value is because I'm really I don't know like yeah. I think maybe just being a decent person but I don't think that comes down to you being you know having national pride in your country like I don't think that's yeah. a cultural thing I feel like there's a a real kind of cringe actually in Australia like if you're if you if you're too open about how you like Australia it's you yes. know a bit bogan a bit jingoistic like go away. And when I think of it, like, I mean, it really enforces, like, you can't have, you know, obviously family violence or organised crime. You can't have but a history. But we have a really high domestic violence rate. It's like, and it, yeah, it's things like that. And then, like, some people idolise Ned Kelly. So we're like, we idolise this criminal figure and it just, is that an Australian value? Like, I don't, mm. it's all of these things. And it like, is this really weird assumption. I mean, unfortunately, domestic violence is a problem that's everywhere. Mm. Um, and yes, it, it manifests in very particular ways in different cultures, but it also manifests itself in a very particular way in our culture. But, you know, maybe we might just be better at hiding it. Um, so I just, I don't know. I think, you know, <laughs> it is a little bit weird that, um, and it is a very lip service thing as well, mm-hmm. I think. You know, oh, yes, we've got to make sure that people understand domestic violence. Well, there are plenty of Australian-born citizens who speak perfectly fine English who are terrible when it comes to um, domestic violence and violence towards partners and all that. Um, and also the question about English is also... Is, is English... Think, is English our language? I think would assume it's the majority... I yeah. don't know if it's like a cult, like a Australian value. I don't know. It's hard because, like, I know that there are people in Indigenous, um, in like remote areas of Australia who you know speak Indigenous languages, and you know English can be the third or fourth fourth language that they that they know. But I think if you're if you're trying to come here for citizenship. I think it might make your life easier. Oh, yeah. It could definitely English. make your life easier. Yeah. So but I also, think yeah. maybe that is – that's the most mildest of things that I would say are the changes. Mm. Um, like, I'll just go through some of them. So it's really – it's a weird thing because all of these things can – I'm not going to, like, insinuate that people would, but can be just – lied about because they're so obvious yeah so one of them is you have to demonstrate that you've integrated into society and contributed to the Australian community um, you know through employment through um, like community organizations or that your school um, you've enrolled your kids in school 
and then also that your opinions of violence against women, uh, respect for women, um, and sort of like equal opportunity is in line with, again, the Australian value. But like... Anyone can say that they like Yeah, women. so it just doesn't seem... And, you know, that was a big question. Like, how can you, how can you prove or how can a person show that in a test? I think like that's the thing with this reform is that... Um, rather than showing any sort of need for this sort of... it's There's not really substantive, substantive changes in the test. It's mainly, I think, for an audience, a national audience, it's a bit of a dog whistle on mm. race and fears of immigration. Um, the um, mentions made um, of sort of welfare problems and criminality is um, definitely something that they haven't been linked to immigrants sitting... Um, citizenship tests so um, why the government is making links like that um, it's quite an interesting um, yeah. perspective um, but also all of the things that you mentioned about asking certain questions about um, accepting certain laws in Australia they're covered in the current form of the test which asks you to commit to the Australian legal system and mm. abide mm. by its laws so um, the highlighting of it, I mean, sure, it doesn't do any harm, but in this sort of space that we're in now on immigration, it is an interesting, perhaps, tactic. It yeah. is a little bit like, here you go, Pauline, just, just you know, chew on that, feel happy. Mm. I feel like also in regards to the language test, um, I think the thing that I think I feel about it is that it is obviously um, going to favour um immigrants who are from countries that speak English or countries that, you know, like even like countries that speak English and also um, countries that have languages that are similar to English, which are easy to kind of learn. So, you know, other Western languages. So, you know, frankly, if you're a French speaker, it's not that difficult to learn um, English because there's a heap of overlap um, in comparison to, say, I don't know, Chinese and um, English. My question is actually, um, if if we if we want Australian, if we want um, people who um, are trying to get Australian citizenship, how do we like? Are they going to have programs for immigrants to learn English? Are they going to assist people? Because, like, I know that a lot of people have tried to teach themselves English um, after coming to Australia, but you know. They have to work, they have to do all these other things Mm, and that's really difficult. So, like, you know, are they going to be compassionate and, and like, you know, actually help people um, assimilate or help people, I guess, you know, get used to the country that they're living in or are they going to just assume that they have to do it by themselves? That was an interesting point that Lee Sales made um, on 7.30 when she interviewed Malcolm Turnbull. It was sort of like giving this um, analogy of, you know, a person who works, he's come here um, and he's working full time. Is he supposed to, you know, takes care of a family? Is he supposed to go and, like, teach himself English when he's trying to contribute to a society that you have um, laid out in a test mm. that he has to have done. So, yeah, that that's definitely, like, a point like, that would be interesting to I see. I do think that, like, in general, because most people do speak English in Australia, like, they should, there should be programs for recent immigrants mm. to learn English because that can stop them from being um, exploited, that can help them understand what's going on in the country, 
but like if they're just expecting people to just learn it on a whim and English is a very complicated language and if you're doing you know if you're raising a family um if you fled war if you've um you know if you're working however many hours a week that's really difficult well, to I think learn a language that I'm, the type the having that program in um would be would be appropriate given the time frame that they've given for um applicants are required to have lived in Australia as a permanent resident for like at least four years rather than yep. once so that gives them a lot more time which we are out of yeah, <laughs> so we have to squish in a pop chat yes um <laughs> really 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 quick pop chat um salt bay um he is a turkish citizen so he voted in the referendum and the way he put in his ballot box was just like he put salt on a steak it was wonderful <laughs> And the only way to vote. <laughs> oh, I just uh, this week the new AM, ANU poll um, was released. It was um, looking at the impact of science on public debate, and um, they um, surveyed a large number of Australians on the phone, um, and they found that um, a majority of Australians support science and want politicians to rely more on the advice of scientists and experts um, in their policy making. So, eighty-two percent. Um, want politicians to rely on experts, which is a pretty great um, uh, vote of confidence in mm, facts yeah, in definitely. this post-fact world. And yeah. currently today and all over the world, there's been science, um, rallies about science and protests about science and getting people to listen to science. It's very refreshing. Very refreshing. That was a anyway, good pop chat. It's very very good pop chat. <laughs> but that's... That's it for another episode of Represent, the Hour of Politics. Join us next week, same time on Sin Nation. Check us out on Instagram um, for searching SYN Represent or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Sin Represent. We're on Twitter at Sin Represent. And um, we podcast, you might be listening to a podcast right now. Um, we're on Omni and we are on iTunes. Ooh. I'm Tash. I'm Julia. I'm Isadora. And you've been listening to... Thank you.